You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits, B Pro Kennels, Final Rise, and a Nook Shook Professional Dog Food. Big thanks to our title sponsor, B Pro Kennels. B Pro Kennels is a small business creating ultra high quality and custom dog boxes for the gun dog owner like you and I. No matter how big your string of dogs, B Pro Kennels will make sure you have a box that fits your needs for you and your gun dogs. With an innovative storage design and built in solar panel and battery bank for quick access to charging accessories like dog collars, lights, fans, you name it. This is a dog box unlike anything you've seen before. Check them out at bprokennels.com. Oh, and they're made right here in the USA. And this is presented by Anook Shook Professional Dog Food, the world's highest energy dog food, period. Anook Shook's dense formulations ensure your pup in training and your seasoned bird dog get what they need to succeed in the field. High protein for muscle recovery and retention, high fat for quick access to much needed energy. Anook Shook works hard so your dogs can work harder. Check them out at anookshookpro.com. This podcast is also presented to you by Final Rise. All good things start with a solid foundation. At Final Rise, all three of their premium Upland vests are built around the foundational waist belt to provide you all-day comfort and endless customization. With a secure waist belt and thin, high-quality shoulder harness, this is the vest you can load down with birds and walk all day in. Final Rise is creating high-functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort, balance, and a lifetime of memories. Check them out at finalrise.com. And this podcast is sponsored by Trinity Bretons, home of the Epignol Breton, also known as the French Brittany. All Trinity Breton dogs are from champion bloodlines that are field-tested and family-approved. For over 33 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to offer you the best-bred Epignol Breton in the country. Trinity offers puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickox, started dogs, stud services, and a whole lot more. Check them out at trinitybertons.com. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Upland Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Will Larson, and I am coming to you at midnight on whatever day it is. Was it Tuesday? Monday? Yeah, I think it just turned Tuesday right now. Um, man, it's been a day. I am <laughs> I'm so out of it right now. Um, just kind of dawned on me that I need to release an episode, that it was Tuesday or coming to be Tuesday at the time. And I was like, oh crap, I need to, uh, I need to get an episode out. And so, um, yeah, here we go. Here we go. I'm, I'm a lot of it. So bear with me. Um, Hey, we got a baby in the house. We have a baby. The baby has landed, uh, safe delivery for my wife and our new little girl Hadley. Um, so it's been, it's been fun, man. It's a uh, man, a girl, whoever's listening to this. I don't, I don't know. Whoever's listening to this, you get what I'm saying. I'm running on low sleep right now. Um, uh, not really because of the baby, just, I've had a busy day. Honestly, <laughs> the baby's been great. Um, I mean, sure it comes with, you know, being up a little bit more, but it's, it's not that bad. So, um, we're pretty chill with our parenting. We kind of go with the flow and just whatever, like we don't have strict bedtimes for our kids or anything like that. So just had a crazy day, a um, lot happening. Um, gosh, I'm looking over my notes that I need to share in this opening and it's kind of long. 
Oh man. All right. Well, I'll go for a couple things. Um, okay. First things first, Anook Shook professional dog food is back on as a sponsor of the podcast. Cannot thank Anook Shook enough for their support of the podcast. Um, I've been feeding Anook Shook for gosh, several, several months now. Um, for the second time <laughs> I was, I was on it, um, a while back and then switched away from it and then decided to come back to it, um, before I had a sponsorship with them. So just to make that clear, I went back to a nook shook before I was sponsored by them. So, um, it was a great food. My dogs were responding much better on it. I, I chased the shiny object and switched foods and, um, didn't work out well. Um, went through a hunting season on a different food and, uh, my dogs were doing some weird things <laughs> that they've never done before. And, uh, going back to Nook Shook, have not had any problems again with their formula and their food. And, uh, just knowing that my dogs are getting, um, such a, a high quality dense formulation that is, uh, you know, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to have a fly flying around here right now. Um, but yeah, so dogs have been doing fantastic on it. I mean, they're running as, as much as they need to, as far as they need to, and uh, with, with no issues. So Nookshook Professional Dog Food, um, they're, one of the, the big things with Nookshook is ordering by the pallet. And so if you get a couple of buddies, um, maybe you guys go in on a pallet order, um, or you want to just be a, a wholesale, uh, I guess, you know, wholesaler. Yeah, wholesaler. You want to buy a pallet and then you know resell it to some people in your area, um, that's a great option as well. Uh, maybe make a little money as well in the process. And so reach out to a Nookshook professional dog food. Uh, talk to Brian over there. I've had him on the podcast uh, a while back. Uh, he was a great dude. Uh, they're doing some great things with a Nookshook. So that is the first thing I want to go over with you. Um, second thing, our up and rookie hats are in stock. You may have seen on social media. I've been posting those um, yesterday. And uh, so if you want to get a hat, uh, for, uh, the Upland Rookie hat, um, now's your time. Uh, so shoot me a message, uh, email me, uh, uplandbrits at gmail.com. Hit me up on social media and uh, we'll get it figured out. Uh, get your order in and go from there. Venmo or PayPal is probably the best way to pay. And hats are $38. Um, yeah, that's including shipping too. So I had one person that are like, well, $38 is expensive. I'm like, well, it's including shipping. <laughs> so shipping's included. And so you don't have to worry about that. And a lot of other podcasts and, um, and some other people who are selling hats. I, I looked at a bunch of people, some waterfallers and other podcasts and people who are selling hats and it's like 30, 30 bucks, 35 bucks for a hat plus shipping. So I was like, well, screw it. I'm just going to say shipping's included. I'm not here to make money. I'm not here to become rich off hats. <laughs> that's, that's not my thing. So, um, so if you want an Upland rookie hat, they're really, really nice. They, uh, they're genuine leather patches. Um, just, just really nice, high quality hats. And so if you want to get one, uh, let me know and we'll, uh, we'll get you your order in. So, uh, I'm not going to be doing these very often. I did one small batch and it's just kind of a pain in the ass to do. So this small batch and won't do another one for quite a while. So, um, there is that. So Nook Shook covered the hats. Um, all right. Wanted to go. Oh, Patreon giveaway real quick. Patreon giveaway. So I did contact the winners. Jason Y was the winner of the, was it August? Yeah. August giveaway. Um, so Jason went with the knife from Upland Knife Company. So Mike Thompson over at Upland Knife Company. Thank you again for putting up a knife, uh, and sheath for, uh, for our August giveaway. So that means we still have the Gunner Fan Kit 2.0 and the, 
tie-out system from Cable Gangs. Let me tell you, the Cable Gang tie-out system is one of the best pieces of gear I bought in the last several years up there with my Final Rise vest. Um, so you got some great chance. I mean, a Gunner Fan Kit too is, I mean, no, no slouch as well. <laughs> it's an amazing uh, piece of gear for your kennels. Keep them cool. All that good stuff. So, um, so get entered. If you want to be in the September and October giveaway, get signed up on patreon.com slash the Upland Rookie Podcast, and uh, you'll be entered into all giveaways. Um, also, I should note that the, um, whatchamacallit, the Patreon members, Patreon patrons, Patreon patrons uh, get a discount on hats. So if you want to save a little more money uh, or save a little bit of money on hats, become a Patreon member and you'll save some money on a hat. Um, and then other thing I was going to tell you is, bum, 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 bum. what was I going to say? Patreon. Yeah, that might've been it. Okay. Other thing I was going to mention is, oh, I got my dog box from B Pro Kennels. <laughs> I'm super, super excited. I've been getting so many freaking questions on the dog box. Everyone's telling me I have to make a video for YouTube because they want to see it up close in detail. And I will, I promise I will just my life is literally nuts right now. Um, with the baby, I got some work, big work stuff happening right now. And with my, my day job that pays me actual money. So, um, again, I have a lot happening, so I will get that done. I promise I will do a video on YouTube. Um, going over the dog box, Ben Proctor drove it out from Utah over the weekend. And I could not be more excited <laughs> about this box guys. Um, it's, it's better than I thought. The color's better better than I thought. The quality, the layout, the features. Um, I'm really, really excited about this this box from B Pro Kennels. So um, stay tuned. More will come on that, I promise. Um, so check out uh, my Instagram. I got a couple pictures up there um, on my stories, and I'll be doing more over the next couple weeks. So stay tuned with that. Um, okay, last thing. Sorry, I knew this was going to be long. I said a, a lot of notes, a lot of things rambling in my head. Like I said, it's after midnight. I don't do well on low sleep. By the way, I was supposed to do a, um, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, tailgate talk episode with Jeremy. <coughs> Jeremy, jackass. Um, I was supposed to do a tailgate talk with him tonight, but he kind of bailed on me. But I, in all fairness, I might have kind of bailed on him too. I was, I was getting a little tired. I was watching the Broncos game and just yeah, it got late. But he was he was just getting getting wrapped up from hunting, so he was it was kind of late all around for everyone. But anyways, that'll be coming. I promise. Uh, we'll do another tailgate talk. It's just uh, it's kind of hard pinning down uh, Jeremy. He's 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 a busy guy. He's a very popular popular gentleman. Roaming the fields of North Dakota. Um, okay, last thing I was going to talk about a um, little bit more in depth, a little bit more serious was my trip to Nebraska. Um, next couple of weeks, I'll break down this a little bit more. Um, I have a couple things I want to share with you, including um, some of the, I guess, some of the takeaways and the learnings I, I did. Uh, I did about a f five day, yeah, maybe about a five day trip last week. So over to opening, um, opening weekend, uh, did about a five day trip of hunting and got the dogs out. And, um, so I'm breaking down a couple more things including, uh, like top three pieces of gear I brought things I brought that I, I had no use for, and I will not pack again, <laughs> things like that. So I'll have some fun with it and break things down a little bit more, but, um, just wanted to kind of go over my experience a little bit, um, heading out into, uh, 
the sand hills chasing uh, sharp tail um so went out uh wednesday and that was before season started and scouted a little bit um didn't move a bird and that was kind of a theme for me actually um the next couple days uh in the sand hills and uh went home and come in normal spots and uh chase birds or not chase birds ch- uh went home in normal spots that i've moved birds and found birds in the last several years and didn't see a thing um it was kind of frustrating to be honest with you i, I was you know scouting day I was, I was i was fine i was like oh whatever we didn't see any birds no no big deal Opening morning, uh, went out, um, again, it was, it was hot. That was a common theme. Everyone around the country was, you know, complaining about how hot it was. I get it. Didn't change my plans at all. Like, yeah, we get, you know, two, maybe three runs in the morning, um, in the sand hills, like no big deal. It is what it is. We make the most of it. It's not going to cancel my trip. Like we're still going to get out there, have fun. You know, it's, it's, it's just good being out there with the dogs. And so, um, so yeah, I didn't, didn't see anything. Uh, was that Thursday? Yeah, Thursday morning and got to start getting a little discouraged. Like, all right, like checked out this spot, checked out that spot. Like I ran wind engaged separately, um, just to try to maximize, you know, we could go a little further. Um, again, they were getting pretty tired. Um, did one run, one really, really short run Thursday evening. Didn't see anything. Uh, tried some new locations Friday morning and, um, I'll be honest with you guys. Like I was getting frustrated. Um, I was getting kind of discouraged. I'm like, Oh, like, why did I do this? Sell everything, sell the dog, sell the, <laughs> just get fire sale. Like we're done. We're done hunting forever. Um, and I, I, I guess I want to bring that up as like kind of a learning. Like I'm, I'm sure we all go through that. I hope I'm not the only one that goes through that. Like you have a bad day. Like that sucks. You have a couple bad days. I mean, that really sucks. I mean, that, that kind of hurts. Um, I mean, a bad day of hunting is I mean, it's still a bad day of hunting. Like it's, it's no fun. I mean, yes, it's great being out there. I mean, again, I was trying to bring myself back to, you know, oh, it's just good to be out here with the dogs, you know, being out in nature. Like I get it. I live by that. I, I do. Um, I, I think that is what keeps bringing me out to the uplands is, is the time with the dogs, the time in nature. Like, I love that. I love chasing birds, but still we're out there to, to find birds, have our dogs point them and shoot birds. And so I was getting frustrated. Um, and, uh, again, my plan was to be out there through Sunday. And so Friday afternoon after my morning hunt, um, I was like, well, screw this. Like I'm going to, I'm going to go back, uh, kind of recalibrate to Denver, and uh, packed everything up. Uh, so packed up early, um, came came back to Denver, kind of just recalibrated. It was good to sleep in my own bed, see the kids, see the wife, you know, check in with her, make sure she was doing good. This is, this is po- or pre-baby, before we had the baby. And, um, and it was kind of in the back of my mind. I was like, well, like the mountains are cooler. <laughs> it's a cooler temps in the mountains. Like maybe I'll try. Some, I mean, hell, I wasn't having having you know great luck in the sand hills. Like let's let's go do something different. What do I have to lose? And so um, we did it. We we you know Friday night hung out with the family. Saturday morning got up super super ass early and uh, headed out to the mountains. And so um, I'm sure you followed along um, on social media with that. But um, we were successful with blue grouse for the very first time. Never, never was successful with blue grouse in the past. Was able to uh, connect on a couple blue grouse that day and it was phenomenal. I had so much fun. Um, I just, <laughs> I had the best time. Like I, I still smile and just get so excited thinking about that. Um, those couple days, I actually went back out on Sunday, 
tried a new area. Again, I got into a ton of birds on Saturday. Sunday, I said, well, screw it. I'm going to try a new area, you know, something different. Um, and again, got into a bunch of birds. Got a limited blue grouse on Sunday. And again, just had the best time. And I bring all this up. I'm going to start wrapping this up here. I bring all this up to say, be flexible. Be flexible on your plans. And, and yes, we're all going to have a bad day. Like I was down on myself. I was frustrated and just wasn't going my, going my way. Um, that, that Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Um, that's okay. Like we're, we're going to have those days, but you got to be flexible too. And kind of keep your head up and be like, all right, suck it up buttercup and keep walking. (laughs) Um, again, I wasn't expecting to go bluegrass hunting. I wasn't expecting to go traipse around the mountains and, and be sucking wind, but Um, I did. And it was the best decision. It was so much fun. Um, Not sure. Would it have been equally as fun to get into a couple coveys of uh, Sharptail? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm sure it would have. But um, uh, there was something special about changing plans and being successful still. Uh, Again, I put in the work, put in the time, um, tried new areas, went in kind of blind, like I knew this area. I I found birds there one time, you know, back this summer for, for blue grouse. And, um, I found them and so it ended up working out. So I say that as an encouragement to everyone listening, um, don't give up, keep walking, like all the cliches I'm going to say, but, um, you know, put in the time, keep walking and, uh, and be flexible with your plans. Like, yeah, you might have a plan to hunt this particular area. Well, change it up a little bit, you know, figure it out. And, uh, again, kind of the, you might ask, well, why didn't you just try a different area in Nebraska? I could have, it was just too damn hot for me. My tolerance level, I was like, I'm screw this. Like I was, I was just kind of done. I was like, you know what? I, I'm, I want to go somewhere cooler. <laughs> Plain and simple. The dogs were, you know, it was hot for them. We can only get one or two walks in, in the morning. I was like, you know, I'm going to try something different. So anyways, all those people out there who are, are hunting in the heat and that's amazing. Like, like great job. Kudos. I, I mean, I, I wish I could have been stuck it out with you, but I, I didn't. And, uh, but anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely rambling now. We're 18 minutes into this episode and you haven't even heard the best part of the episode yet, which is, which is the guest coming up here. So anyways, guys, I hope everyone is having a great, great start to your season. Um, I know it's an exciting time out there. Um, seeing a lot of people posting pictures of birds and with their buddies and friends and, and their bird dogs and young bird dogs. I love seeing that. And, uh, yeah, be sure to, uh, tag the Upland Rookie podcast and some, some photos if you want. And, you know, I'd love to, we'd love to share along in your journey a little bit and, and experience what you're experiencing out there. And so anyways, tag the Upland Rookie podcast, um, whether Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. So anyways, guys, we're going to jump in to the episode today. Sorry again for the long intro. Just had a lot to say um, as we open up the uh, season here. So Josh Tatum, uh, Josh Tatum and I sat down a little while ago and uh, recorded this one. And we dive into a lot about conservation and uh, upland habitat, uh, specifically sage grouse we dive into quite a bit. And, uh, I, I really, really appreciate Josh's, um, Josh's take and his, his mindset around conservation and, um, restoration of habitat. It was a really, really, um, a, a conversation that really kind of challenged me a little bit to think a little bit harder than I, I normally do. And so I really appreciated that about Josh. He's very thoughtful, um, in his answers and his research that he has done personally. And so, uh, I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. And, uh, without further ado, we're going to jump into today's conversation with Josh Tatum. 
So Josh, uh, why don't you tell us, uh, first off, a little bit about yourself. Give us a quick overview. And uh, also, can you put us on the map? Where are you talking to us from? My name is Josh Tatman, and I live in north central Wyoming. Um, I've been a bird hunter for pretty much my whole adult life. I started as a teenager. Um, Yeah, so as I'm getting a bit older now, I guess that means I've been hunting several decades. So, (laughs) How's that feel? (laughs) Um, uh, What do they say? The the pride of uh, young men is their strength and of old men their wisdom, right? So that's how it feels. (laughs) Okay, that, that summed it up very nicely. Sums it up very nicely. Um, kind of a kind of a fun fact, Josh. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit to you live on the podcast here. In my mind, I've been calling you Josh Tatum. <laughs> you wouldn't be the first. Don't, okay, okay. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not the only one. And I don't know why. I'm like, oh, I'm talking to Josh Tatum today. <laughs> it's Tat Tatum Tatman. Tatman. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I am <laughs> a, a rather uncommon <laughs> Scottish surname. Okay. Yeah. All right, very cool. That's so funny. I thought I'd just lay that out there for you so everyone can hear. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're going to, uh, we got a whole bunch of things to, uh, to get to today. I am really, really excited for this conversa- conversation. So I really uh, appreciate you jumping on here. Um, I know we were just talking a minute ago. Um, you just picked up a new puppy, didn't you? Correct. You did. And what, and what did you, what did you pick up and why? Why don't you, why don't we jump in with that real quick? Okay, so Blaze is our new Deutsch Longhair male. Um, he came from Washington State, um, so he's nine weeks old and change now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so we're pretty excited to have a new dog in, in the house. We, we have another dog as well. Um, Bailey is 13, so we've got a, a young one and an old one now. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and, and how, how old is Bailey? 13. They're, oh, 13. Wow. Okay. So yeah. you got the, the both ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's exciting. Of course, looking forward to the season ahead. It's, you know, the question in my mind is, you know, how do we balance all of this? You know, <laughs> I, my current strategy is to do some mellower hunt, hunting with Bailey, the old yeah. dog, towards yeah. the beginning of the season, and then um, maybe get the pup into some action December, yeah. January, when, when it's a little bit older. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exciting. What what led you down the the Deutsch draw? No, not Deutsch Drahard. Deutsch, Deutsch long, long hair. hair. Yeah, basically. What, what led you that that hair. path? Uh, so uh, Bailey, our older dog, is a flusher, which I love hunting over a good flusher. But uh, and actually, for our next dog, at one point we considered getting another Bailey, uh, which Bailey mm. is a mutt. She's a husky German Shepherd cross. Uh, which in the designer dog sphere is known as a Shepsky. Uh, But, you know, she's she's an accidental great hunting dog. Uh, And we're like, well, you know, I guess I guess we we really like Bailey a lot. And we've we've really enjoyed her over the years. But at one point, I think we came to the conclusion that she's essentially irreplaceable, you know, so Hmm. um, kind of a one, one one of the kind. Well, I, I feel like if we tried to get another Bailey, we would we'd be disappointed, you know. 
because she's just sure. such a great dog. So uh, yeah, we yeah. De- we decided to mix it up, and uh, I was interested in trying a pointer as I pr- pretty much exclusively do upland, not cool. waterfowl, uh, and of course live in Wyoming where. Um, there's more open spaces than not. Um, sure. But I, I didn't really want a really big running pointing dog. Um, mm. So I was looking for breeds that range kind of a moderate distance on average. Yeah. And I also wanted a pointing dog that had uh, really good manners around the house and around the family. A, a pronounced on-off switch, if you will. Uh, sure. And... Uh, Deutsch Longhairs have a reputation for that. Um, small Munsterlanders were on the short list too for the same reason. Okay. Yeah. But. Now, did you did you ever hunt over uh, a Deutsch Longhair nope. long before or no? Nope. We just jumped okay. in. So okay, <laughs> just just go for it, man. You bet. I mean, kudos, kudos for you though. Of of really, it sounds like you were pretty articulate in thinking about what your style was. What what were the key things you wanted? Cause not not everyone does that. Some some people I'll, I'll chat with, you know, they let's just say primarily pheasant hunt, and they're like, hey, I want a want a big running pointer. And it's like, oh, okay, right. <laughs> okay. But it sounds like which there's I mean, nothing it, wrong. It with can that. work. I mean, it's it's no, a, it it's a great totally option for some people. Uh, but yeah, I guess I like hunting in closer proximity with my dog, and, and totally. I mean, d- despite um, you know, probably common opinion wyoming isn't just big wide open spaces kind of kind of bird hunting you know um, i really enjoy hunting forest grouse and kind of closer quarters and you know somewhat closer ranging pointers seem like a good fit for that yeah that sounds fantastic well very cool josh i'm sure we'll we'll circle back to your dogs here even even more as this conversation goes but let's let's rewind just a second and uh tell us a little bit about I guess your background in, in hunting upland birds and dogs, and sure. and we'll get into some of the stuff in, you know, more specifically Wyoming, and, and we'll go from there. I didn't really have any family members that hunted, so I kind of taught myself how. Um, as a teenager, I lived in western Nebraska, and it's pretty much pheasants there for upland. Um, so I kind of dabbled in that a little bit during high school, but kind of my early college years... Um, I, I was working at a remote research facility in far northwestern Nebraska out on the grasslands. And um, after work, I'd grab my shotgun and just go for a hike across the prairie and uh, maybe find some sharp tails, maybe not. But um, sharp tails were kind of my first love with upland bird hunting and, and kind of got me hooked on it. I didn't do a lot of bird hunting through college. Um, Kind of, kind of more after we moved to where we live in North Central Wyoming. Now that's kind of when I started more in earnest. So that's maybe fifteen years ago or so. Okay, okay. Um, so I mean, was it kind of just? Do you have anyone like influence you at all, or was it just you were like, hey, I'm going to go try this? Like you said, even in high school, college age. No, no, I didn't. I I didn't really know anyone else that hunted that could take me. So mm-hmm. I just basically bought you know bought a an old beat up winchester pump and a box of shells and went for it uh yeah i I don't know i've always been kind of enamored with the idea of living off the land and sort of um kind of that that simple life right of Hmm. uh, sort of subsistence hunting and i think that's what first kind of drew me to it to it 
Sure. This may be kind of a funny question, but when you think back to that, okay, you think back to your beginning, you, this is how you started, you just kind of picked it up and said, hey, I'm going to go try this. I guess, what did that time teach you? I mean, again, doing it without even maybe without a dog back then, just grabbing your shotgun after work and going like, like when you look back on that time, was there any kind of key takeaways or, or memories that you have from that? Gosh, I I guess, you know, it kind of stood out in my mind that when you're at, when you're actually hunting, um, it's it can be a lot harder to find birds, especially dogless, what like I was at that point. Uh, you know, it seemed like just driving down the gravel roads in western Nebraska, you, you know, we'd see pheasants in the ditch and stuff. But when you're actually hunting them, yeah. it, it can get a little bit uh, more challenging for sure. But I don't know. I mean, it it. For me, hunting wasn't like this introduction to the outdoors, right? I was already yeah. really enamored with exploring the outdoors, and hunting uh, was just kind of a vehicle to do that. Um, mm. And I guess that that's still basically where I'm at in my um, philosophy, if you will, on hunting. It's you know, I really enjoy I really enjoy bird hunting. Um, it's something I hope to do for the rest of my life. But you know, I got lots of other outdoor hobbies that I enjoy virtually as much, um, that, sure. that get me out there and give me the opportunity to explore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the best part is just, you know, whatever we're doing is being outside in nature and, and, and that's, that's, that's half the fun sometimes just being out in beautiful areas we get to be in, whether it's like, I think I know you, you fly fish, fly fish a little bit and, you know, we get to be in some beautiful places, whether we're behind dogs or not. Correct. Um, so continuing with your story a little bit, when did the dog then come into play for you? Uh, so we got Bailey um, when she was one. Okay. So we've had her like a dozen years. Um, and initially, we, I wasn't really interested in getting a hunting dog at that point. Um, hmm. But we just kind of wanted a c- companion family dog. Um, so it was, it was kind of just a fluke that, you know, we, I went out and tried putting her on some birds and she seemed quite interested and she just kind of fell right into it. Um, yeah. She's, that's, that's cool. I mean, she, so if, if people don't know, they'll, they'll have to go to your Instagram just so they can kind of get a visual. She, she looks like a Husky, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we think she's a Husky, uh, German shepherd cross. I guess we don't know that for sure since we adopted her from a shelter, but. Okay. Yeah, I mean, she's a big, beautiful-looking white dog, she's and a, she's a, I, my she's eyes a lit up. She's a super my eyes model. lit up when I when I <laughs> saw her with a chucker in her mouth and a couple, you know, chucker after a hunt you guys had. I was like, "What the heck? This is so cool." <laughs> she she oh. definitely likes chasing birds as much as I do, so probably more. And 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 you, I think you said she flushes, right? Correct. Okay, okay, that's so cool. Was there any like apprehension of of Again, so you had a little bit of experience up on bird hunting by yourself. Then you throw the dog into the equation. Was there any, like, apprehension of, oh, is she even going to – how is she going to do out there? Or was it just like, hey, we're just going to see how it goes and kind of just took the, off from there? I with the gun introduction, there was some apprehension. But she, the, in the context of wild birds flushing, she adapted to that pretty readily. Hmm. That's cool. And she have pretty – I guess a, a pretty decent drive, it, it seems like then, to find yeah, birds and, yeah. and flush them. I mean, even before we, I started hunting her, she's she just had phenomenal stamina when she was younger. I mean, 
she could literally run for miles. Um, so yeah, if anything, too much drive when she was younger, but I mean, she's 13 and she can hunt wild chucker. So that, that's uh, for, impressive for the majority of the day. I mean, she's slowing yeah. down for sure. But, um, yeah. I mean, if I, if I don't go s- stupid hard, she, she's okay. Yeah. So. That's, I mean, that, that's cool to see again, not your, not your typical thing you're going to see on, you know, someone's page or hunting, hunting in a field and. But again, I'm sure you've had some incredible hunts and memories and had a blast with her. That's, that's pretty cool. What, um, so Josh, I, I believe, I, I have to think back on all my, all my recent guests over the last year or so. I think you're my first Wyoming guest. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> on that. Yes. Not surprised being I, the, the least populated state in the union. Well, <laughs> well that's, that's going to be kind of a theme for my next couple of questions okay. here. Um, but, but first off, just uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, give, give us an overview. What is upland bird hunting like in Wyoming? And I have, I have some follow-up questions already, but, but give, us a, give us a scope. What's, what's Wyoming like for upland birds? We don't have a lot of any one thing, but we have a lot of variety. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Hmm. Um, if you like changing things up, chasing different species and different sorts of terrain, uh, it's a fun place. Hmm. I, I, it's kind of like, I mean, again, people people <laughs> people tell me I'm too hard on Colorado. I kind of say that's like Colorado a little bit. I mean, For I sure. Our, our, our blue grouse is, is pretty good, but like pheasant, quail... Um, well, I know we have some prairie chickens, but like, it's just so there's not a ton of them, but they're, they're here. Is that kind of how Wyoming is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, neither Wyoming nor Colorado, I don't think have an official upland slam like Nebraska does. Uh, but yeah, I want to say what, what is it like a dozen huntable upland species in Colorado or something? You've got, you've got Wyoming beat by three or three or four, I think. Oh, okay. In yeah. species. But yeah. but there's seven that you can hunt in Wyoming. So, so you, oh yeah, you have a lot then. Yeah. Do you, do you have, tar- no, you don't have ptarmigan anymore, right? That's correct. They're, they used okay. to be in Southeast Wyoming mountains, but uh, then we killed them all. Okay. <laughs> That's sad. It is. That is sad. Um, yeah, it's, it's not, yeah, it seems like, okay, well, this is kind of my next follow-up question is like, why, I guess... And maybe we go beyond the, okay, we have a, um, a lot of species, but not a lot. Like any of the reasons in your mind, living in Wyoming, why maybe is it overlooked? Is it just people are going to go past it and go to Montana or go past it and go to Nebraska? That's a really great th- question. Um, so in, in some regards, I don't know that it is overlooked. I mean, hmm. if someone, if you're talking to someone from wherever, Pennsylvania or Florida or wherever, and they told you, um, I'm going on a bucket list sage grouse hunt. Where would you guess they're going to go? Well, I'd say Wyoming. Yeah, most likely, right? Um, there are yeah. certainly other states they could do that. But in, in that context, I don't think Wyoming's really overlooked at all. It's hmm. um, And also for uh, Chucker and, and Hungarian partridge, it's starting to be a little more well known for that as well hmm. uh, but in other it, when in regards to other species i think it's absolutely overlooked um hmm. like you say i mean a lot of people drive from the front range up to hunt montana or north dakota for sharp tails and hmm. are driving right 
where you buy a lot of basically through sharp tail habitat the whole time to get there. Yeah, yeah. That, that was me, Josh. That yeah. was me last year. I was well, I, obviously I'm in, near Denver, I'm driving right through Wyoming. Right. And some of the seasons weren't open yet. I because I, I was looking at it on my phone while I was driving, which don't do that. I know, <laughs> but um, I was looking at the seasons for Wyoming because I'm I'm driving through the whole state and I'm like, why why did I not stop here to hunt? <laughs> I well, kind of like just kick myself. I'm like. You know, I think I think part of that is just that the upland community is is just blown up so much over the last handful of years, and I think there there's uh, there's starting to be destinations that are known for specific species, right? Like Eastern Montana mm-hmm. for sharp tails, um, mm-hmm. and I think that um, that fame uh, causes people to overlook other spots and. Uh, I would imagine that a lot of the sharptail covers in eastern Montana probably have more birds than most of the covers in eastern Wyoming, but they're here, <laughs> and sure, especially in in good seasons. Like, gosh, I mean, I've had days in in some good years where, I mean, you'll move four to six different flocks of sharptails easily in a mm. in a day. So, I mean, yeah, they're they're here if you look for them. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, no, I know. I'd love to kind of maybe talk, maybe some specific birds, if you don't mind, for a second. Sure. Um, with I guess while we're on sharp tail, do they? Was I reading? Do they close part of the state for sharp tail? Like, are there only sections of the state you can hunt them? Um, I want to. I'm not an expert or is that just on sage this, grouse, and maybe. I would definitely caution anyone to look at the regs. But um, <laughs> sharp tail, I believe there there's one hunt area, which is the entire state. Um, uh, okay. The, what what you can't hunt though are Colombian sharp tails, uh, which are in a small area in kind of south central Wyoming, uh, okay. which is sort of ironic because that's the species of sharp tail you guys can hunt in Colorado and you <laughs> cannot hunt prairie sharp tail, right? Am I correct in, in thinking that? Correct. Yeah. So we, we call them in here. We, um, we call them the mountain sharp tail, right? Yeah. Mountain, yeah, mountain so sharp tail a... equals Colombian sharp tail, right? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh. So you cannot hunt those. I, I'm just putting right. this together actually right in real time. I'm like, I'm like, Oh, there's two different types of sharp tails actually. Right. Well, actually there's, oh. there's a number of other, I want to say that, um, Colombians are their own species, but even within oh, wow. sharp tails, I want to say there's like six or seven subspecies. Um, like there's prairie sharp tail and plains sharp tail, and I don't remember all the rest. Wow. So there's, there's a little, uh, variety there if you like. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I, I mean, again, I knew we call them mountain sharp tail. I knew they were called, um, Colombian sharp tail, but I didn't put, I guess, put that together that they were different than the ones I hunt in Nebraska. Right. That's cool. That's cool. I, I don't remember if they're bigger or smaller. I can't, I can't remember. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. Um, I guess, what do you find yourself hunting the most in, in the state of Wyoming? Uh, so like you, I'm a dad with young kids. Um, so prioritizing family time is very important to me. And so I don't do a lot of travel hunting. Um, I maybe do a, a couple trips a season where I'm even doing like an overnight or something. And even sure. then I'm probably only going three or four hours. Um, so I, I kind of stick pretty close to home and, sure. um, I, when I'm close to home, I'm usually targeting sharp tails and hunts, okay. um, or blue grouse. Okay. If you, if you had to pick one. Blues. 
hands down. Blues. Okay. Really? Yep. Okay. You like you like being in the mountains a little more and chasing well, the birds. Well, you know the setting is is certainly nice, um, especially early season, uh, because mm. you know you don't have to worry about rattlesnakes up on the mountain. And it's cooler. It's a yeah. lot less chance of your dog overheating. Um, yeah. But I just I just really like blues. I like hunting them. Um, mm. They they sometimes get a bad rap for just kind of being dumb birds, but. Um, yeah, I've heard people say that. that yeah, but I, well, I think they're pretty. I don't know. I, I've I've hunted them a couple times unsuccessfully so far, but right. I, so you've, I know, you've you always you've flushed you've moved some, huh? Um, I no. So I've hunted the last two years. I've hunted them. I've never found them. Gotcha. I just found my very first blue grouse um, on a scouting trip a couple a couple weeks ago. Cool. Was it and, a, uh, so that, a, a hen with a brood, or was it a big male? I, so I couldn't tell if they're male or female yet because it was the first time I've first time I've seen them flush. Sure. Um, there was about I think eight birds total. Sounds like a brood. Okay, so with that Sounds you like mean young brood? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it, yeah, it was exciting. They were big. It was uh, yeah, I was I was shocked. So it, I found them. I, I've told this probably on the podcast before, but I found them not in the trees yet. They were in the sage, hmm. maybe a few hundred yards away from the aspens. So a bit lower elevation. Um, yeah, that's yeah, also elevation. an indicator that it's probably a brood. Okay. Yep. Um, so yeah, so that so was, that was exciting. So for blues. Sure. Um, the it depends on which part of the ra- their range you're talking about, but generally speaking, um, adult blues will spend the cold months higher up in elevation. Here, here it's like seven thousand to nine thousand feet. It's probably a little bit higher down there. Um, yeah. And they'll just hang out up on these cold mountain ridge tops and just mm. munch pine needles all winter. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then in the spring, uh, the they'll migrate down to mate, um, mostly due to proximity, due to uh, to good brood rearing habitat, which is exactly mm. uh, that what you just described, like kind of like a meadow, a meadow with, edge. With the yep. Yep. Some, yep, 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 some brush like sage, maybe close to some yep. aspens, which indicates it's probably a little bit wetter environment. So more forbs mm. and insects for the um, the young to eat. Um, yeah. yeah, and then and sense. then they'll and then usually the the big males will migrate back up for the most part um, before hunting season opens, and so they'll be up on their ridge top haunts and. The uh, okay. and then the the hens and broods will kind of follow them up shortly shortly after. Oh, very cool. But in some parts of their range, they don't actually migrate in elevation that much. That's that's kind of a weird quirk about the species. But mm-hmm. it's it's a little overblown. You hear people talk about that a lot, but yeah. it's not always the case. Um, hmm. Yeah. So here here where I live, the mountains have a lot of meadows up high. So um, hmm. sometimes they don't have to drop that low to get to good brood rearing habitat. Yeah, I was I was talking with someone the other day. Um, this episode it won't release for a little bit, but um, he was saying he hunts blues quite a bit, and he was saying it can change year to year. Even he said one year I'm finding them around this elevation, and next year I'm finding them around this elevation. And he said he's noticed kind of a it can it can really vary. Sure, it's not always they just go as high as they can. So um, you, you brought up a point about male and female. Um, this a question I I don't, I don't know the answer to. How how would I tell they were male or female? The males are definitely larger. Um, Just bigger, okay. The, the males also have uh, a much lighter colored breast. Um, they have kind of a uh, almost pale steel gray 
uh, breast color. Whereas okay. the hens have a little bit more of a brown modeling in with their gray. Yep. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I'll be looking. I was I was too excited in the moment to <laughs> pay attention to close details. Oh, um, all right. How about um, so so you hunt huns, sharp tails. Um, talk about sage grouse, I guess, for a little bit. Do sure. you do you hunt them much, or and what is that like? I know there's a lot of stuff going on with sage grouse right now and their decline and in, in their sagebrush habitat but um do you, do you still chase them once a year or what's that like for you yeah that that's that's about right um yeah last season i went out a couple days uh kind of just more locally uh, which doesn't have as good a sage grouse numbers as some part of the state but i was trying to help a biologist buddy who was trying to collect uh, blood samples from harvested birds to test for mm. Uh, West Nile resistance within the population. and But unfortunately, it was kind of such a dismal year for birds, I just didn't even see one in mm. in, a, in a few days of hunt, hunting them. So I didn't shoot one oh, wow. last year. But okay. yeah, normally I harvest maybe one or one or two a year. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, two more just to chat about real quick is Chucker and Huns. Um, so Huns, I guess just give us an overview of, I've only chased huns up in Montana, North Dakota. How, what are you looking for, in, I guess, in good hun habitat in Wyoming? Well, up in that country, a lot of times, um, wheat field margins, especially with a little, you know, breaks to kind of rolling draws and hillsides and stuff is, is sort of the name of the game up in that country. But, um, down into Wyoming, we don't really have grain fields anymore. Um, there, mm. there used to be years ago, but uh, not anymore for the most part. So uh, you're, you're kind of still looking for mar margin stuff where there's um, kind of dissected hillsides, um, some brush, a, a lot of, a lot of sharp tail habitat and hunt habitat overlap where I am. Uh, and then you get into some other parts of Wyoming and chucker and hun habitat overlap. And usually the huns are a little lower mm. in elevation in those areas and the chucker are, are a touch higher typically. So, so in, you, you'll find it like in, so on like a chucker hill, let's say, so it can be pretty rocky and stuff, but they're just lower than the chucker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it seems in, in my limited experience, of course, it seems like huns and chucker, both like somewhat similar habitat, I would say. Um, the difference between the two that I've found is um, chucker seem to prefer slightly rougher terrain, so steeper slopes, um, okay. and and definitely seem to have a preference toward uh, like rocky outcrops. Um, th mm. This is certainly not a hard fast rule. I mean, I've found chucker sure. just kind of flat as a pancake, sagebrush, creek bottom stuff, and. Mm. And vice versa, you know, I found huns up high. There's even some hun populations that go way up, at, uh, like several thousand feet up onto the face of the mountain where where I am. But I would say, as a rule, um, huns are going to be a, a touch lower and gentler. But yeah, okay, that's awesome. And are you with chucker? Are you are you hunting them a few times a year? Is that something you like to get out and do, or just kind of a uh, little less than the sharp tail and, and huns? No, I, I enjoy chucker, um, but we don't have them locally, so I have to drive at least a few hours to get to them. But I, I still probably get in, I don't know, 8 to 12 chucker days a year, depending on the year. 
So okay. yeah, yeah, they're they're fun and they're they're kind of a fun way to especially late season. Mm. In most places that's, you know, people hunt them December, January. Um yeah. and and you know when you're all when you and your dog are all dialed in and in shape but by the end of the season that that's kind of yeah. a good time to go after them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um hey, 12 truck 12 trucker days a year. That's that's no small feat right there, sir. It'll uh it'll it'll keep me in shape for ski season for sure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um so thinking back, uh I know we got a lot more to get to with uh, you know some of your writing and uh some of the uh uh, some of the different acts out there right now, some of the Pittman Roberts and stuff. But as we kind of round out uh, this little section here, when you think back to last year hunting for you, was there any standout moments for you or um, or learnings maybe that, that you took away from last season um, that kind of stood out in your mind? So there was, there was one day in particular where um, I, I kind of just woke up and I had the day free and we didn't have any family stuff going on that day, so um, I decided to throw the dog in the in the shotgun in the car and uh, just go on a little uh, road trip around an area that's only a few hours from me, but I had never been in it at all uh, for for any reason, and so um, we kind of explored around, and my dog and I, Bailey and I found um, a couple chucker covers, but but didn't find birds. We just found sign. Um, and then we found a pretty, a pretty good chucker zone. Um, that was pretty cool spot with nice cliff bands. And, uh, we, we found a nice covey there and bumped them a few times and, and harvested a few birds. And, um, we were also able to kind of explore some canyons that day and, uh, see some rock art sites, uh, native American rock art sites that I'd never seen before. And, I think we got back at, uh, I don't know, nine or something that night, which was well after dark. Cause this is like <laughs> late November, I think. Um, and I don't know that it was, it was just exactly what, what I love just a day out exploring new places that I'd never seen before. Um, mm. you know, some success, but, but mostly just the fun of exploring. Um, uh, that was, yeah. that was a really fun day. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, all right, Josh. So some of your writing, I want to get into a little bit. Um, first off, I, I know you've written some articles in some different uh, some online blogs and magazines. I want you to talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, what, what led you down that path with, with writing and, and getting some of these uh, articles out there. So I don't really have a background in creative writing. I did technical writing for a number of years when I was working in the sciences. Uh, but uh, I, I guess the catalyst was a, few, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, I was starting to pay more attention to outdoor writing. And I noticed that, um, that there's a lot of, of one of two different categories. There's a lot of kind of narratives of uh, an interesting hunting trip or, you know, a great day in the field. And um, some of those are written really well and have really, you know, beautiful and moving prose um, and, and then the, the other type of writing that I was seeing a lot of is kind of more how to stuff, right? Like, hmm. you know, five, five tips for success on sharp tails or, you know, sure. um, whatever that, that kind of thing. 
but I wasn't seeing a lot of writing that was kind of uh, challenging people to think deeper about uh, how they interact with the natural world. Um, hmm. And I feel like my, my whole life, that's been a really driving factor for me, right? I, I don't want to just do what I do, right? I want to think about it. I want to consider if it's the best course. Um, I want to consider the way that I'm, you know, viewing and interacting the world uh, around me. Um, and, and I think that seeing that whole, uh, the, yes, there are, cer- there, there are certainly plenty of good writers that, that write stuff like that, but it's, it seems like it's, it's the exception. And so I wanted to kind of step in, into that void a little bit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert. I'm not an expert in anything, um, including bird hunting. Um, and, and I would never want to come off that way. Uh, but I guess, um, ultimately I just, I just want, um, people to think harder. <laughs> mm. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I mean, even, uh, I know there's a, a piece you wrote for, um, was it, was it project, project upland titled, uh, uh, what hunters can do to help sage grouse. Mm, was, yeah. that, was that the piece you wrote for, for PU? Uh, I did do an article called sage grouse forever. It's, um, oh, okay. it, it would have been in their, uh, 2021 fall, um, print edition. Um, okay. yeah. And that's, that's the kind of writing that I'm most interested in. I have done a few how to pieces, um, especially ones where I feel like I could contribute something to the, you know, to our upland hunting community, um, and especially yeah. if I can frame it or, or at least pepper in some sort of conservation concepts in, in with those how-tos. But yeah, that yeah. the Sage Grouse Forever article was sort of exactly the kind of writing that I want to be doing. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of why I brought it up because like you said, there's kind of the technical or there's kind of the um, how-to stuff and then there's, what was the piece you mentioned that you, you were noticing a lot of? Um, kind of, kind of just more prose, right? Like story, story, stories like of story. a, of a sure. yeah, like a narrative of, you know, a hunt or a trip or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, I guess with that, so it sounds like you're very, again, you're just, it seems like you're very wired for kind of like, again, thinking beyond the fun story of the hunt and the, the kind of the fluffy how to, again, the, both those things have their place. Absolutely. But I guess what, what has kept driving you to really get behind the, again, some of the conserva- conservation side, the, um, you know, natural resources that we have, like what, I guess, what's that driving factor for you? Cause it sounds like it's a really important, important thing for you, um, <clears throat> which I think it um, should be for all of us. <laughs> right. I think for, for me personally, um, I was, I'm, I'm not really well read and, you know, like all of the you know, I haven't read like all of Aldo Leopold's writings or anything along those lines, but um, I, I was influenced kind of in my younger adult life by reading some conservation writers like Edward Abbey or Doug Peacock or um, Rick Bass. And um, the, the, those, those guys writing really kind of opened my mind to um, new perspective about the natural world. Um, kind, of, kind of a not anthropocentric um, perspective, right? It's, uh, it's not uh, the perspective that it's not all about us, right? That there's mm-hmm. inherent beauty and value in the natural world beyond its value to humans. Um, mm. yeah. And, and I think that's a big driving factor for me. Mm. 
That's so good. Um, so, well, I, I guess, again, I guess, so what are some of the things that you've written that maybe, you know, if someone hasn't done, read some of your writing or like what's, I guess, what are some of the pieces you're most proud of, I guess, and why? Um, yeah, I, I would, I would probably um, refer to the uh, Sage Grouse Forever article if, if you know, I think people, if people really wanted to read it, I think you can hop on Project Upland and order back issues. Um, huh. But I feel like, yes, there was you know narrative and story in the, in that piece, but um, but I, I was also able to um, weave in kind of kind of a, a call to action almost, right? Like, hmm. um, yeah, sage grouse are cool. Yes, sage grouse hunting is fun. Um, but there's there's more to the picture than that, and um, at 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 risk of uh, at risk of sounding preachy, um, us as a hunting community really has the opportunity to kind of step up our game when it comes to c- contributing towards conservation. And can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And what is that in your mind? What does that look like? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 yeah. Uh, so, um, I think that there's several limiting factors, right? So, uh, okay. So let's say you're in a room full of other bird hunters and, uh, you, you asked a question to the room. Um, who, who here is in favor of conservation? Uh, I'm pretty sure that you're going to get hands in the air from probably everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you ask the room, um, what, what does conservation mean to you? Um, mm. You might actually get, you know, maybe two or three responses. And then if you ask the room, what do you do to work toward that? Um, mm. <laughs> you might get a lot of sheepish <laughs> glances, wild. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I, again, I don't, I, I never want to sound preachy, and this is as much of a challenge to myself as it is to anyone. Uh, but I, uh, I feel like there's, uh, in in the hunting world, especially when it comes to conservation, we need a little less talk and a lot more action. Um, mm. But you're right. What what is that action, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, there's, sorry, I'm cheating and looking at my notes here. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, so there's, there's several, uh, ways that people could, uh, contribute back towards conservation. Um, as a whole, I think that it really boils down to voluntary efforts, right? Uh, because yeah, we buy hunting licenses, uh, but that's requisite, right? I mean, yes, you are contributing towards conservation if you're buying a hunting license, but really a, you know, a small portion of that license sale is actually going towards conservation work or, you know, scientific research on, on, um, a game species. A lot of it is just going towards maintaining operations of game and fish or whatever your, um, managing agency is called in your state. But, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, there's that, and then and then I know you wanted to touch on Pittman Roberts and stuff, so we'll, we'll circle back around to that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say you buy a box of shells, you know, you've got that Pittman Robertson tax 
on that mm -hmm. box of shells that gets divvied out to the states to use towards conservation work. Uh, but again, that's that's requisite. It's like a hunter doesn't really have a choice in that. Um, so, uh, I unless a hunter is giving money voluntarily or giving time voluntarily, um, like, I like, like you like you were saying voluntary. Like it's different than buying a license because you have to buy a license versus uh, volu voluntarily sending money to a conservation organization. Is that kind of what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. So okay. um, obviously a way you could do this is um, donate to a nonprofit. Um, so uh, like here in Wyoming, you could give money to the uh, Wyoming backcountry hunters or and anglers or the Wyoming Wildlife Federation or the Sage Grouse mm -hmm. Initiative. Um, and, you know, those funds will go towards research or habitat conservation. Um, mm -hmm. But if if that is a if that is a hunter's course in, in trying to contribute more towards conservation, I think it's very important to vet um, the organizations that you're contributing to, um, because um, sometimes okay. So what is conservation, right? Like I, I guess yeah. I, I don't have a because it's a, I don't have no. A, no I, yeah, I was going to ask you because yeah. that's it's a very like it's such a like everyone throws it out there. I throw it out there. Sure. You, me, my neighbor, we all talk about con we love conservation. But like you said, if you had a room of fifty people, yes, we're all going to raise our hand. But then like 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 we're talking about like what does that exactly mean? Do we all know what that exactly means? Sure, I don't have a dictionary in front of me, but I'm guessing a a diction, dictionary definition of conservation would mean would be something along the lines of, uh, you know, preserving something for current and future generations, or um, you know, yeah. saving something for the future, something along those yeah. lines. Um, yeah. Sometimes um, I feel like for hunters, especially, there can there can be sort of this confusion and crossover with um, where conservation is sometimes used in the context of increasing opportunities for hunters, um, mm. which those things aren't mutually exclusive, uh, but, but they are a little bit different, right? Um, mm. So, I mean, if you're donating money to, um, here in Wyoming, you could donate to the Access Yes program, which will, the game and fish will use to secure access to hunt private property. It's like, that's cool, okay. um, but is that conservation? Are you saving uh, birds or habitat for the future? Not really, mm. you know. Um, so but it's kind of under the umbrella, maybe, of, oh, this is conservation. It seems like it gets uh, swept under or sucked under that umbrella. Yeah. Um, and, it, okay, so so here's here's a really good example. And this is relevant um, for for your homes, your, your current home state. Um, so back in the 90s, there was a big push to introduce ruffed grouse to Colorado, which um, are not native to Colorado except for a very small population in far northwestern Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a big push from several influential people and several well-known national um, conservation organizations to introdu introduce the species. And the Colorado uh, Division of Wildlife, I think it was called at that point, um, kind of express some concerns about that. They're like, okay, wait a minute. What's the point here? You know, the, in Colorado, this is basically like introducing an exotic species. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like what are the ram ramifications of that? 
you know, it could potentially increase hunter opportunity, but do we need more hunter opportunity? I mean, they're, they're talking about, you know, places like, you know, in, I, I guess I won't hotspot, but, you know, north central Colorado that just have plenty of blue grouse already. You know, it's not like there's no birds to hunt or something. So um, for, as far as hunter opportunities, it's maybe a little bit like, what's the point? Uh, but uh, they all, so the, the organizations and the individuals that were pushing for this basically railroaded um, the Division of Wildlife and and they, they would have had their way and they would have introduced rough grouse um, in Colorado, but um, the Forest Service actually um, put a kibosh on it because it wasn't fitting with their um, forest use plans there, mm. that they were kind of coming out with at that time that did want to limit anything wonky like introducing a totally exotic species. Um, mm. So, I mean, some people might say, oh, you know, that's conservation. It's more birds to hunt. But it's like, is it conservation? Mm. I guess in my mind, conservation would be I mean, trying to basically leave the land the way God made it as much as possible, right? Um, uh, especially when there, there wasn't even a, really a need for, for additional hunter out. Hey, just want to take a quick moment to remind everyone, um, if you would like a Upland Rookie hat, I do have them available right now. They are in my garage, sitting right next to me. Um, so really quality, um, nice leather patch uh, Upland Rookie hats. I have a few different styles. Um, did a small run uh, of a few hats. I think they turned out really nice. If you would like one, shoot me a message on Instagram, Facebook, uh, email uplandbrits at gmail.com. And uh, we'll get your order in and get that sent out to you as soon as possible. Hats are 38 bucks, which includes shipping and a $4 donation to Pheasants Forever. Um, really wanted to um, do something to give back uh, from these hats and, and give back to conservation and the work that Pheasants Forever is doing for upland birds and habitat. So... Um, yeah, that's all I gotta say. If you'd like a hat, shoot me a message. We'll, uh, we'll get it to you. Um, yeah. So, and, and just so, just so I'm following you and the listeners are following you, um, conservation, you're saying in that example, conservation was more so on the forest service side, right? In my opinion. Then, yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah, there, okay. there are those that would disagree, but I mean. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I just want to make sure I was following you. Okay. Basically, in, in my mind conservation means leave it as wild and natural as possible as unmessed sure. around with right um sure. i mean and and i guess this could vary widely depending on what part of the country we're talking about i mean if we're talking about eastern nebraska i mean basically everything's an ag field already right so if you yeah. plant a strip of milo next to your cornfield or or whatever um you're not really significantly modifying the landscape any more than it already is. But imagine mm -hmm. if you, like on some of your sharp tail covers you hunt in eastern Montana, imagine if you walked out there and you just saw like a Milo strip planted across the uh, virgin <laughs> prairie on a hillside somewhere. That It's like, is wait a minute, is this conservation or is this basically us trying to turn the wild into a game farm? Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because because I'm I'm wrestling through that in my brain right now as you're talking. I'm I'm thinking, okay, so say they planted a strip of Milo. In my mind, my initial reaction is to go, well, isn't that good for the birds then? Because that's more cover, you know, more food for them. Like, again, that's that's where my mind initially goes. But you're kind of saying it's more about the land than the birds. Is that right? Uh, I guess in my mind, um, I I guess I have a more 
holistic uh, viewpoint on it. It's like, yeah, everybody likes having more birds to shoot, but is that is that all we're after? I mean, if we just want more birds to shoot, then you know, why not just have pen raised birds <laughs> everywhere? <laughs> you know, just release just put out put out birds everywhere. Pen raised birds, <laughs> there'll be plenty to shoot. You know, uh, sure. But that's that's not saving. Um, that's that's not conserving. Um, the, for future the generations, for future generations, especially with uh, with some of that stuff. I mean, some of that stuff you can't take back very easily. I mean, sure. Um, I've I've been in plenty of places in the prairie where, you know, there was an oil boom in the '60s or something, and and you know maybe they tried to reclaim some of the infrastructure and stuff. But you, I mean, you can you can see where their access roads were, even if they're grown over, you, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not, sure. it's not going back to any sort of natural state for thousands of years after you modify it. So I think it's something we need to be very careful about before we just, um, decide that we, we just need new, more birds to shoot at any cost. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's take this conversation then, and I guess translate it to the sage grouse in Wyoming. Again, we talked about when someone thinks of Wyoming, they think of sage grouse. Probably the probably the first bird that'll come to their mind. What's what's going on again in your opinion, your research that you've done? Like, what's going on with the sage grouse in Wyoming? What are some things that you know us as listeners, as as upland bird hunters, should be aware of or, or should know about what's going on? I guess. Do you, do you have some knowledge that you can share in that? Again, I'm not an expert. I'm not a sage grouse biologist. I, I know some sage grouse biologists, but I, but I have done some research for my own interest and for um, some articles on that subject. Um, okay, so in in Wyoming, um, there's a an enti- a state entity called SIGIT, uh, uh, Sage Grouse Implementation Team, that's appointed by the governor, uh, and they they're kind of in, in charge of uh, advising the governor and legislature of best courses for sage grouse management. Um, as a rule, they, so, they, so they're like the sage grouse kind of like overseers almost. Yeah. It's like a, a group. Yeah. Okay. Let's call them the Wyoming sage grouse committee. Um, okay. So they, um, as a rule, they defer any decisions about, um, game management of sage grouse to the Wyoming game and fish. Um, so the Wyoming Game and Fish has a commission uh, that's kind of in charge of bigger decisions uh, for the um, for for that agency, uh, and they also have a um, sage grouse coordinator. Uh, this is basically like the point person for the state of Wyoming on sage grouse, right? Um, so uh, with sage grouse management especially in the context of hunting um there's there's been a fair amount of research that suggests that limited hunting is not a primary factor that um, leads to sage grouse uh, population declines Um, but but there's quite a few ifs attached to that Um, here in wyoming uh, the state's policy for managing them as, as a huntable species is based on uh, two, two articles um, from sage-grouse researchers, one from 2000 and one from 2010, uh, that both recommend that no more than 10 to 11% of the fall population of sage-grouse be harvested by hunters. Um, hmm. 
so, which is a nice hard number. Uh, the problem is we don't have a nice hard number of either how many birds are harvested um, or the overall fall population. That's, and so coming back to harvested, Wyoming uses a voluntary survey that they send out to hunters to fill out and send back. And you could mm. say, eh, you know, they can probably, from the whatever it is, I want to say it's yeah. like 13, 15% response. You could extrapolate about how many birds are being harvested, but it's certainly not very exact. Uh, sure. And uh, you can also kind of extrapolate what's going on with the population uh, because sage grouse conveniently all come to their lecking grounds in the spring. And so you can count, you know, the males on, on a lecking ground and get an idea of the population, mm-hmm. but that's the spring population. It doesn't factor sure. in, you know, the important large chunk of the population that's that year's young. Um, that's mm-hmm. basically a complete unknown by the time the hunting season rolls around. So we've got this nice hard number, you know, we don't want to shoot more than 10 to 11%, but, um, our proximity to that threshold is a bit uncertain. Um, and you could argue, well, I mean, if birds aren't, you know, precipitously declining over the years, we're probably good one way or the other with current harvest mm-hmm. rates. Um, but bird numbers have been declining <laughs> over the years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, of course, just like all, all other game birds, sage grouse kind of have fl- no, naturally no. Flu- so fluctuating populations. Quick question is yep. um, when we say declining again, is that based on the lek counts? Largely, yes. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yep. Uh, so uh, th- their numbers rise and fall in response to you know optimal weather conditions, etc. Uh, just like any other upland bird, um, that cycle probably is a little longer than it is for most birds, uh, upland birds, just because their, li- their lifespan is a lot longer. Like sage grouse can live to like six to eight years old if, uh, if they survive that long. Um, so it's, it's kind of difficult to tell, okay, you know, is, is the, um, are the short-term declines due to the natural population swings, or are we looking at an actual long-term decline in the bird numbers? Uh, so, uh, for the last, I, I want to say it's like five or six years that statewide lek counts, lek counts have been declining for sage grouse in Wyoming. Um, and the state has largely said, you know, this is within the parameters that we expect for natural population fluctuations. Well, last, uh, January, um, the, the acting sage grouse coordinator, um, was interviewed and she expressed concern that she felt like um, current trends were, were perhaps moving outside of that threshold into just long-term population declines, which is mm. not good. It's not good if you mm. want to hunt sage grouse. It's not good if you just want wild places with wild birds, right? Mm. Uh, well, uh, within two weeks of that interview, um, she was no longer at her position, uh, hmm. which I guess you can speculate as to why. Um, but um, I get, I guess you know. I think I think a lot of times, uh, you know, as a whole, science usually supports the idea that hunting is not a significant uh, impact on 
uh, on game bird populations if it's managed appropriately. But um, I think hunters are are really um, quick to lean on that instead of ask mm. tough, tougher questions like, well, well, is it? <laughs> you know, like, uh, mm. is our current harvest level okay? Um, mm. And of course, you know, hunters are really pressuring these managing agencies. Um, this isn't you know, this is a case wherever. This isn't just the case sure. in Wyoming. I mean, if you want to hunt Bob Whites in Missouri or whatever, I'm, I'm sure the, um, the state gets a lot of pressure over there from hunters who just want the most opportunity possible to, to chase those birds. Um, sure. But, you know, I, I think um, I, regardless of, of where a listener might live in the country, you know, I, I would really encourage them to kind of dig into this stuff, you know, like what what is the science? You know, are there research on um, bird population trends in my area? Um, you know, like what's going on? You know, how is the state managing this? How are these decisions being made? Um, there's a lot of hunters that are really ready to go to bat for more more opportunities for hunters. Uh, but I don't see a lot of hunters stepping out there to say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, like I, I'm, I'm good with not hunting this bird if, if it's better for it in the long run. <laughs> mm. I, mm. I don't hear that as yeah, often. You don't, you don't hear it. Yeah. You, I, I don't think I, I have heard that. And, <laughs> so. and usually when you do hear that, it's from someone that's a very seasoned hunter that's been around for uh, many decades. And, sure, and they, they can have a little bit bigger, yeah. bigger picture. Maybe, yeah. They're not and, trying to fill a bucket list. You know, they're not just trying yeah. to whatever zip down to Arizona to shoot their Mern's quail to check it off the list. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. like, I don't care if I ever they, shoot a Mern's quail again. I just want them to be out there in the wild. That more of that yeah, kind they, of we, we, could, we could kind of say they, we could kind of say they care about that. Like we, like our, again, our, our made up definition of conservation was kind of protecting it for future generations. Right. Like they, they kind of have that maybe perspective in, in mind, maybe, you know, more than some of some of us would. Sure. Um, one of the things I, I've heard from other, whether it's people online, organizations, friends of mine, um, but I didn't hear you mention loss of sagebrush habitat in, in what you were just saying with that. Mm, yeah. In the sage grouse. Yeah. So is that, yeah. Talk about that. So, uh, uh, I, yeah, I guess I was more speaking just to like the management of them as, as a, uh, a game bird. And those okay. impacts, whatever they are, you know, like sustainable, not sustainable, that's just one of the the many um, impacts to sage grouse right now. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a buddy who works with sage grouse a fair amount over in central Wyoming, and he says, yeah, you know, sage grouse are suffering a death by a thousand cuts. Um, you know, they've mm-hmm. got they've got habitat loss, which is kind of this big un- umbrella problem that is really ultimately the biggest problem for sage grouse. Uh, but that's due to multiple reasons. It's due to uh, development for um, the first thing that comes to most people's mind is energy extraction, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, a new gas field or oil field or wind farm or something. Um, sure. So there's that, you know, that there's, um, there's habitat loss uh, due to wildfires. There's habitat loss due to invasive species like cheatgrass, which is usually coupled with wildfires occurring. Um, hmm. Yeah, the, the habitat loss is, is a really big daunting problem, uh, but there's hmm. other factors too. I mean, there's, there's disease, um, you know, West Nile, um, of course, um, 
bird flu, avian bird flu is a big question mark that as far as we know that that hasn't made it into sage grouse populations yet but it sure could mm. um mm. and there's uh, yeah uh there's there's a lot of things that are adversely affecting sage grouse yeah. And, and is it true? I think I've heard when, if sagebrush burns, it's, it's not grown back for a long, long time. Is that right? Yeah. Not, well, um, so, I mean, when you're driving across Wyoming on the interstate, it just looks like a whole bunch of nothingness out there. Right. But, sure. um, just like driving through the, the grouse woods up, up in the North woods, you know, it might look homogenous to someone who's not familiar with that train, but sage, sagebrush isn't just sagebrush. You know, there's different age classes and plant communities within that sagebrush community. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, essentially it's going to take a long time for, for that, um, that sage to come back to a mature, a, a mature height after a fire. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. fires occurred naturally for millennia and actually were important in creating kind of more of a patchwork environment, uh, just like pheasants, uh, sage grouse, like like edges where they, you know, like we've got a mixture of some mature stands of sagebrush that allow for easy access to foliage in the winter. Uh, we want some areas that are kind of more of a riparian zone where there's green grass and lots of bugs for chicks to eat for brood rearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't just, you, you can't just be like, okay, sage grouse, here's your little acre, right? Um, they need a variety of, of, a natural variety of plant communities across the landscape. Uh, but the problem with fires now is, um, of course, they're burning so much bigger and hotter than they ever had historically. Mm-hmm for sure okay um all right last question on this kind of topic and then we're going to move into some of the other uh, acts out there as we as we kind of turn the corner um th- th- okay so i'm going to preface with with each of the next things we're going to talk about i'm going to ask kind of this, a similar question here what can we do talking about the sage grouse right now like what is someone out there listening who lives in wyoming someone listening who lives in colorado is there any action or anything that, that us as hunters, as, as people who love the outdoors and uplands, anything we can do specifically for sage grouse in Wyoming that would help or, or I guess sage grouse in general? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, these things might be easier to accomplish as part of some sort of organization, right? So I'm picturing like a pheasants forever chapter or whatever, getting together and working on projects like this. Um, so for sage grouse, um, you can, restore habitat. Um, so this might look like removing defunct infrastructure, like fences that are no longer needed for, um, grazing lease rotations. Um, it could mean removing power lines and old, um, oil or gas fields that are no longer even used and are dissuading sage grouse from using a large area habitat just cause it's a raptor mm. perch, right? Um, mm. that's not, I mean, if it's a defunct power line, that's not actually that expensive to remove and it, it could open up, sure. um, a lot of good habitat to those birds again. Um, after fires and other disturbance, you can plant sagebrush, although that's pretty challenging. Um, probably more, a more effective place to put time and money would be to spray for invasive grasses. Um, they, hmm. they do this, um, strategically in Wyoming after burns in uh, important sage grouse areas uh, mm-hmm. so that after a fire burns through, 
it's not all just cheatgrass in another handful yeah. of years that there's actually that the native plant species actually have a chance to to come back um, to retain that habitat uh, another thing you can do is improve uh, brood rearing habitat in um, in riparian areas the sage grouse initiative does a lot of work with the, with this in particular uh, because a lot of these areas are on private ranches um, a lot of those mm. those you know lower wetter areas were some of the first to be um, homesteaded um, back back in the day uh, so they work with private landowners to um, both change grazing rotations so that um, there's less impact on those important areas when the birds are using them. Um, you can still graze them, uh, but it's just more of a matter of how much and timing. Um, and then you can also try to restore areas that have suffered erosion. Sometimes this happens due to overgrazing and riparian areas. Uh, but basically you can build little structures that allow the water to kind of pool out. Um, what, one of these is called a, a BDA or a beaver dam analog. Basically you stake little chunks of stuff um, within the, the flow of a stream bed. So the water has a chance to kind of more naturally pool out across um, a, um, a river uh, terrace or a, a stream terrace. And that, and that allows um, for, for more green stuff for the birds in those, in those zones. Um, the other thing you can do for habitat restoration is thin conifers, which again, uh, sage grouse hate because they're raptor perches. Uh, and especially in kind of the western portions of, of uh, the sage-grouse range, like in Idaho and Nevada, this is especially important um, a lot of areas. Due to fire suppression for so many years, have a lot of conifers coming in. Um, and in the, those areas, they, they spend money to go out and basically selectively log out all those little conifers uh, so that the sage-grouse come back into the otherwise perfectly suitable habitat. Okay, here's the other one. I know this is way longer answer than you probably wanted. No, no, this is, this is great. <laughs> okay, so you can preserve, so that was all restore habitat. You can also preserve habitat. This might yeah. look like using controlled burns to mimic a more natural fire regime before you get up, get in this bad situation where you just have a massive fire that wipes out, you know, like the last fragments of good sage grouse habitat. Um, you can limit new development in core areas and the states are have been doing a pretty good job of this um, so it's like yeah you can build a new wind farm but um you know what what if we move it a few miles this away um mm. that sort of thing um i already mentioned modify grazing rotations and intensity not just on private land but definitely on public land too um, and another factor that could be useful too is um, controlling uh, novel predators. So what I mean by that is um, predator, sage grouse predators that were not historically a, a significant predator. Um, hmm. There's some research that suggests that um, heavy coyote control uh, actually leads to more uh, meso predators like foxes or hmm. skunks or badgers. Um, that can be especially problematic because they target sage grouse eggs. Um, mm. Yeah, so, and ravens are another big one too. Uh, ravens were n historically not that present in kind of the lowland basin country of the West, more so up in the mountains, uh, but they're moving in and they can just decimate sage grouse nests in short order. Mm. Uh, so, you know, these are all well known problems. Here in Wyoming, yeah. um, 
there's local working groups. So the state is divided into different zones and um, sports people like you or me could actually be on one of these working groups where you, you, you decide how state funds are allocated t- towards mm. conservation work. Um, and I, I want to, so, so are those subgroups, those aren't part of like a pheasants forever kind of an organization. Those are divisions of the Wyoming fishing game, like volunteer groups you're talking about? Well, essentially, but I want to say that basically they report to SIGIT to the implementation. Oh, okay. Team. Uh, but yeah, the, the local working groups ha- have a big say and they're made up here in Wyoming. Anyway, they're made up of different interested parties. Like you'll have, um, ranchers, you'll have uh, people in the in- energy industry, you'll have conservation groups and, um, and hunters, uh, and, and so that's a really cool opportunity if somebody wants to make a long-term commitment. I want to say that most states that still have sage grouse have working groups where, um, mm. you know, a, a dedicated person could, could hop right in there and, and commit time to deciding how, how that money is spent. Um, and, and that is a place where you, where you could definitely make a difference. I mean, you know, with science, for example, with science suggesting that, you know, removing uh, like a lot of coyotes could actually be detrimental in the long run. You know, hmm. I, I mean, in a, in a working group meeting, you might have somebody be like, well, I propose that we give X amount of money to, you know, the state trapper or, or, or whatever to take out coyotes. And it's like, well, you know, based, you, you know what I mean? There's an opportunity for sure. you, to, for you to bring uh, a well-informed voice there to really steer the direction of management, uh, which, which is huge. Yeah. Um, okay. Absolutely. I got one more. <laughs> yeah yeah go for it <laughs> okay um so uh you i think that another thing we could do not just with sage grouse but a lot of the the uh upland game bird species that are kind of suffering or at least in some areas um like this seems somewhat timed tied to climate change um in a lot of cases uh, like their habitats warming and is therefore becoming less suitable right uh, in, in a lot of places, whether it's um, quail or grouse or whatever. Uh, so really, I mean, being cognizant of our own personal footprint is a factor there. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I guess even, uh, okay, so I'm sure some listeners will be like, oh, you know, that's a bunch of hooey. And it's like, well, you know, the, the scientific consensus is that emissions are, you know, contributing to climate change to some extent. Sure. But even if you don't buy that, um, you, you know, most upland hunters use a full-size pickup. Um, I have a full-size pickup. Uh, to in So if you're doing a road trip or something, that's just what you take. But if you don't need that, I mean, if you're driving to a local cover, uh, like why, and you have the option to drive something that's more view efficient, why, <laughs> sure. why wouldn't you? Like la- last season, I did a, a number of hunts, uh, even like like I was telling you about that one checker hunt that was such a fun day, just exploring these super yeah. remote back roads. I took my old beater Corolla, uh, mm. and we did fine. You know, I didn't drive down yeah. some of the nasty chew tracks. I walked down them instead, but it was fine. Uh, we had yeah. fun, and uh, my gas cost half as much. So <laughs> regardless of, <laughs> Shocking. Your, of, Shocking. Of, of your perspective on, you know, your, your environmental impact, uh, yeah. you know, it just makes good sense you know i mean if i just drove my corolla all season i would essentially double my uh my hunting budget right yeah exactly (laughs) yeah i'd be able to take a lot more trips (laughs) right 
Well, that that I mean, you shared a lot there. I, and I encourage listeners if 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 you got to this section of the episode right now, I would almost encourage you to go back ten or fifteen minutes, and because I think with with just a, the title of restoring and preserving, I think those two buckets you talked about, there's a lot there actually that people can. I think take action in in some way or another, whether it's financially donating to organizations or, like you said, some type of a work group or like there's there's options out there because I think sometimes we feel, or sometimes I can feel like I don't know what to do exactly. Like I don't know. I, I want to help. I want to do something. I want to help preserve and protect you know our upland birds. But I, I'm sure there's other people out there too that just feel like I don't know what exactly is it I can do. And so I, th- I think you gave some good examples of things of, of ways people can get involved. So I appreciate that. You bet. Um, okay. Um, I know we're running a little behind on time, but um, are you good if we run through a couple of these, uh, maybe the Grasslands Conservation Act and the Rawa Act? Yeah. I mean, I guess if we're talking about conservation, might as well, right? Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, we're, we're right there. We're right on the tip of the iceberg. Again, disclaimer, I'm not an expert on any any of this legislation, but... Josh, I, I think I'm going to title this episode, <laughs> Josh is not an expert. <laughs> love it. That's perfect. I love it. We're, we're going with it. Yep. Well, no, I love so it. Yeah. Let's, let's go into the, some of okay. those. Um, yeah. So, I mean... Obviously, we talked about some important considerations already with conservation, but really, we we are at kind of a pivotal moment um, for upland bird conservation uh, in the U.S. Um, right now, we have the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, which is uh, was just introduced to Congress uh, a handful of days ago. Right? Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, basically, recently. This is modeled on the Wetlands Conservation Act that came out uh, uh, a handful of years ago. Um, And the idea is basically it incentivizes landowners to voluntarily conserve grasslands. Um, Grasslands and the sagebrush steppe are dwindling rapidly, which is bad news for anyone who loves following a dog um, through the tall grass looking for prairie birds or or sage grouse. so this act is an interesting one for for uh, to look into. If you if you like the idea, you, you um, support it. Contact your your congressperson. Um, there's there's two different acts that are related to Pittman Robertson right now. Uh, so Pittman mm-hmm. Robertson um, is what you probably know something about this, right? Like uh, Pittman Robertson. But- yeah, Pittman Robertson. Yep. I mean, hunting supplies. Like, I mean, it's on like what bows and arrows now, and guns and ammunition. Yeah, I want right? to say. And it's, then there's a basically a tax that goes to eleven percent. Does that sound right? An eleven percent federal excise tax on. It's either eight or eleven. Those two numbers stick out to me for yeah. some reason. So, and then that money gets um, allocated to the states. I believe it's based off of. Uh, license sales and states states decide right yeah then they, yeah they I think yes I think with it. Um, yeah so Pittman right. Robertson is pre- is pretty important um, funder uh, for conservation work and for uh, more of that kind of hunter opportunity component too it's used for both here in Wyoming um, those funds are about twenty five percent of um, 
of uh, conservation project funding in the, in the state. It, so say that say that one more time. So Pittman Robertson is about twenty five percent of conservation of the, project funding, uh, at least according wow, okay. to the numbers I I saw from uh, from the state. It's the largest source of funding for that work in Wyoming outside of license sales. So it's quite important. Um, yeah, I, and I would say that that's again I, I have no data to back this up, but I would guess that's probably true in most states. Yep. I mean, that, it just seems like it's a huge. Oh, let's just say if, if it's 11%, that's a huge amount of money coming in from each state to help help your state. So we've got two acts in Congress right now uh, go, going opposite directions on Pittman-Robertson. The first one is the mm-hmm. RAWA Act, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. This proposes that um, mitigative conservation, um, mostly from like um, <coughs> energy extraction, um, be used to uh, add to Pittman-Robertson distributions. And this could be really especially useful um, for species that um, are, they're not doing hot, but they're they're not on the endangered species list. Like sage grouse is a perfect example, or like, I don't know if you live in Minnesota, you know, sharp-tailed grouse is, they're not doing so hot. Or if you live in Kentucky, um, you know, bob whites are not doing so hot. And having that additional funding basically could allow the, the states to do what they need to to keep those um, those um, game species huntable um, instead mm. of dwindling to the point they get added to the endangered species list, which nobody wants. Um, sure. Okay, so that's the RAWA Act, but the act that wants to go the other direction on Pittman-Robertson is called the Return Act. This is the mm-hmm. repealing excise tax on undeniable rights now. Um, so this <laughs> doesn't sound good. What you just said, <laughs> it doesn't sound good. So basically this wants to scrap Pittman Robertson altogether with the argument that, um, people should be able to buy, uh, arms tax free essentially. Hmm. Um, but as you might guess that there's there's not really any stipulations within that legislation to replace that important funding uh, which is so critical to the different states and their conservation work yep so there's there's all sorts of hubbub going on there's a lot there's a lot going on I right mean, now really i feel like every day there's something i see and it's just yeah it's it's a, either a new act that's that's being presented or so i'm trying to um kenton bryant right who you interviewed yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah, recently. Yeah, so I listened to that conversation, and he was talking about growing up in Kentucky and back in the day, you know, his his dad's yep. generation, they could go out and shoot limits multiple times a week of, of bobs. Um, but now he goes out and he counts how many birds are harvested from every covey and, like, coordinates with his buddies, yep. it sounds like. Yeah. Because basically they're, I mean, they still have a season for them, but they're, they're dramatically dwindled um, compared mm-hmm. compared to where they used to be, and and you know this tipping point that we're at. I mean, we can kind of go two different directions on it. We can basically go there with pretty much all of our upland bird species. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, people sometimes think, oh, you know, it's the West. We can always go to Montana and shoot sharp tails, and it's like, yeah, you know, some some um, some biologists think that they might actually be declining in some areas, but we just don't have the data to know for sure at this point. Um, you, you know, in, in some of these cases, we won't know we have a big problem in, until it is a big problem. Until and, and, and yeah, almost almost like it's until it's too late, and it's like, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, even blue grouse. One of the reasons I really like hunting blue grouse versus sage grouse is they're much more uh, common, right? Um, 
Hmm. It, but that's not the case everywhere. Down in New Mexico and Arizona at the southern, southern sure. end of their range, they're not doing very well. Um, mm. So, you, you know, we can, we can either basically just be status quo, like, well, let's, let's go jump in our trucks and go, and go shoot a bunch while we can. Or mm. we can, um, we can try to try to find solutions to basically keep them around so we can take our grandkids out for a hunt on them someday, yeah. hopefully. So we, so we don't do what the generations behind us did, exactly. my, my, grand, my grandpa's generation or, or whatever. And yeah, they talk about the heydays and they talk about, oh, it was, it was so great. And we had limited every day and shot whatever, how many birds. Again, those make, make for funny stories now to hear but again my kids your kids my kids are they love the outdoors they love bird dogs and that that's a part that does make me nervous is like okay i'm enjoying this time of life right now like i'm I'm hunting got bird dogs i love it but i don't know x amount of years from now like what's it going to look for you know my my daughter and my son who who are you want to get out there so that's it's kind of a scary thing and i'm sure you know I, i i am somewhat of a pessimist but you know i mean you know, <laughs> is, yeah, it, is I mean, it, pes- it pessimism it, or realism, right? It's like this I really mean, honestly, seems like honestly, it could be, yeah. become an issue in in a lot of places in short order. I know. I, I, yeah, I, and I'm not trying to make this a, a downer at all. It's it's kind of, a, like you said, a real realistic view. And again, the thing I appreciate about you, Josh, is it sounds like you've done a lot of this research on your own for your own curiosity. And not everyone does that. Not everyone can sit down and, and okay, I'm going to dive into sage grouse and what's going on behind the scenes. And so I, that's, I think that's a learning that a lot of people could, could maybe take of, Hey, let's do our own research. Let's, let's look around, do some reading, do some asking questions. Um, can you go back to the grasslands conservation act? And that is, that's more of a restoration project to restoring grasslands or is that correct? Um, my knowledge on it is about tapped. <laughs> so okay, if you okay. Know something I don't jump right in. <laughs> well, I I pulled something from the website, so I mean that's Let's that's hear that's it. something. I mean, so this this part I found from the website is this is list legislature list legislature. Oh my gosh, when I read something, I can't talk, so I apologize. This legislation would create a landowner driven, voluntary, incentive based program to conserve and restore threatened grassland ecosystems across the continent. Right. So that's a little mysterious what exactly that means, maybe. Yeah. But I would guess it probably boils down to grazing rotations in a lot of cases, right, which Mm. we touched on already. And it probably, in some areas, means um, compensating landowners to not put virgin prairie into crop production. Mm. Okay. Okay. Okay, there's a couple more things I got to ask you about. Again, apologies, this is going going long. Um, this is a, a question you kind of wrote down that I had to ask you about. You wrote down state bird farm state bird farming versus habitat conservation. <laughs> Case studies from Montana pheasants and Wyoming sage grouse. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a one par- paragraph just <laughs> answer here. I, okay, let's go for fast. If, if okay. not concise. Um, okay. So, uh, we, we touched on this already, you know, like, do we really want to turn the wild into a bird farm or do we want to conserve real wild birds in real wild places? Uh, well, unfortunately, um, in some places, yeah, they're, they're kind of, some people are pushing to put it in, turn it into a bird farm in Montana right now. The Montana legislature is pushing to, um, 
have, I want to say it's a state prison, raise a zillion um, pheasants and uh, for release for hunters. Um, and it's hmm. like, hmm, well, that, and they want to, it might be like a million. I don't know if that's a one-time thing or if it's that's an okay. annual um, allocation or what that is, but I want the number one million comes to mind. And it's like, huh, you know, a million, huh? You could you could probably hmm. do a, a lot of um, preserving of of um, true wild places and true wild birds for a million bucks, hmm. um, but that's hmm. not what they want to do with it. So that's that's kind of a head scratcher. Um, same, same in Wyoming, um, the state isn't directly involved in this, but they're supporting uh, private research into raising sage grouse for for release. Um, pen raised sage grouse -grouse, yes Uh, now this may have some utility I mean if sage grouse continued to decline it would be helpful to know how to raise them in captivity but you know the the species that that's important for right now are like Atwater's prairie chickens where there's Base, there is no wild population, right? So mm. sage grouse are certainly nowhere close to that yet, thankfully. Um, but I don't know. It almost seems like a ploy from um, certain sectors uh, to be, basically be allow be able to green light development on on pristine sage sage grouse habitat <laughs> because it's mm. I, I, I'm thinking the argument there would be something like well you know let's let's drill it because who cares we can just throw another hundred sage grouse out there um, mm. so I don't know I mean perhaps some people consider that a long term solution but in, in my mind it certainly doesn't seem such yeah okay 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 um, I lied last question I have to ask you about is the R three helpful for conservation, <laughs> the R three movement. I'm sorry. We're, I'm sorry. I know we're you, busting out all the spice tonight, aren't we? I know. I'm just. These are like these are there are questions that are just. That, I, don't, I don't know. I think they're important. So what, go. What, so go what ahead. Do you, what do you think? I want. I want to know your opinion first. Is is R three helpful? Was it retain, react, and yeah? Does that recruit? does that help conservation? At least in the con in the definition of con- conservation, we settled so, on earlier. So I think, I, I think it's a. I'm probably going to speak out of turn because I I don't know a ton about it. But at at first glance, from what I do know in the last five years of my hunting journey, I think it's maybe a good recruiting tool or kind of a flashy slogan. I I don't know about when when you asked me the question of, is it good for conservation or preserving things? I don't know. I I honestly don't know. Well, I I kind of have the same answer. I don't know either Uh, because – I think it's a very good thing if we have more diversity in the field, um, different kinds of people who are interested in hunting and fishing and, um, and interested in, in, you know, exploring the outdoors. Um, that's a good thing, but, um, how, how that plays out, it, it seems like, um, it's not very well understood. Okay, so like, let's say hmm. you, you recruit twenty people to to go to go bird hunting. You teach twenty people to bird hunt. Um, mm-hmm. What are what are those twenty people gonna gonna do to give back? Right. I mean, some of them may do a lot, and some of them may do nothing. That uh, like that's mm-hmm. that's really poorly understood. It's like how mm-hmm. how does that play out in the long run? Because I mean, twenty more bird hunters on the landscape. It's you know. 20 more people's worth of impact. I mean, even if they're harvesting conservatively and picking up after themselves, whether we want to or not, just being there is going to 
leave some sort of impact, right? Um, so j- just yeah. recruiting more people, um, in my mind, is is not enough if we're not um, instilling a conservation ethic in those folks that causes them to actually take action to give back. Um, mm. Without that component, it's simply more impact. Yeah. Almost like quantity over quality. I mean, I don't in a know. sense, like, I'm, like, like we're, we're just, R3 is, is maybe, is it about a lot about, get, let's get example, 20 people in the field. Okay, that's awesome. But what's, and again, I don't know this answer to the question, but like what's the process into, I guess, developing them along? Like yeah. that's, that's the question in my mind that I'm not sure about. Yeah. I, and maybe there's a strategy and a whole program. Again, I would love to get someone on that. For that sure. Really knows yeah. that and deeper. I know, I know there's multiple um, conservation organizations that use R3 as an important model. And yeah, I mean, if they've got like, okay, you want to mentor somebody, these are the steps. Um, these, yeah. these are how you plug that person into giving back. I think um, that would be super helpful info for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. We, uh, <laughs> we, we cruise through some, uh, some big topics there. That's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not, not the light stuff for sure. Nope. Um, but we are, we are going to, we're going to wrap this thing up. We're going to turn this thing towards home. Um, the, the question I ask every guest as we wrap things up here, um, talking to the new hunter out there, talking to the rookie uplander, uh, maybe they, they just picked up a first bird dog. They're excited. They're heading into their, their first season here coming up in 2022. What is a, what's a piece of advice, Josh, that you would, you'd give them? Um, I would say don't get caught up in the hype. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, maybe don't even log on to your Instagram for that first year. <laughs> hmm. uh, huh, that's, that's actually valid, valid advice right there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really with we have a great upland community of really supportive, awesome people that are really passionate. Um, but it is a little easy to get wrapped up in things like, you know, how, uh, how nice your shotgun is or how nice your hunting rig is or how, how hot your bird dog is or any of that stuff. And really all of that detracts from the true joy of bird hunting in my mind, which is simply to go out, explore and learn and see what the day brings. Um, mm. Yeah, and I feel like for a beginner, the, there is a learning curve. And, you know, normally, normally in a given season, I probably have two or three days that are just magic. Um, where the weather's great, um, the dog does great, I shoot great, um, we see some awesome new country, nobody gets hurt, all that stuff. Uh, but I probably have at least twice that many days that are kind of just maybe a little bit better than a bust where, you know, maybe I should shoot a bird or two, maybe flush some and don't shoot any. Uh, but if a person finds that they're beginning in bird hunting and they feel like they enjoy it, I would just encourage them to stick with it. Uh, because if they put their time in, those magic days will come. Mm, I love that. That is that is so well said. Those magic days will come. They're not going to happen every time, but they're they're going to be in your memory when they happen. Um, okay, sir. We are just going to go over our rapid fire round and uh, and finish this thing up. So I'm just going to ask you a couple a uh, couple closing questions and just give me your off the cuff answer, and we'll go from there. All right. Go for it. Okay, so uh, for you, what came first, the dog, the gun, or the bird? The land and the birds. 
for sure. Land and birds. Okay. Okay. Uh, Josh, what gun are you carrying into the field and why? Uh, I mostly use a Browning Satori 16 gauge. That's an over and under. Um, I like the 16 a lot. It's, um, I, it's, you can do anything with a 16 gauge. I can hunt sage grouse. Mm -hmm. I could hunt, um, you know, Hungarian partridge. It's a great gun for all upland birds, in my opinion. Uh, but the main reason I carry it is because I just feel like the dimensions of a 16 gauge just feel like the natural right size of a gun uh, for me. I also have a backup mm. 20 gauge over and under. It's a Weatherby Orion. Um, and I okay. like that gun too, but it just feels a little small um, to me. Okay. Um, yeah. And you, Very you cool. run a 20 cool. as well, right? A 20 over and under. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I run it, it pretty much exclusively 20. So I, I actually just picked up a 20 gauge Satori uh, a couple months ago. Awesome. So I'm excited to uh, get out there this season. Yep. Um, so I, I've never shot a 16. I, I am curious to, uh, to try one someday just to see, see, sure. see how it feels. Well, and don't pick up, don't pick up like. like a Rosini round body or something. Otherwise <laughs> you'll just mope around for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's good advice right there. That's good advice. Um, okay, Josh, favorite dog breed besides the one you own um, or the ones you own? I'd probably say a Spaniel of some sort, like maybe a Springer okay. or a, um, a Field Spaniel. Um, I, okay. I feel like, um, especially for Uplanders, I feel like um, Flushers kind of get snubbed a bit, uh, but they can be super fun to hunt behind if you are behind a good one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. Most clays you've ever hit in a row. <laughs> probably, probably this not can be, I, I should, <laughs> I should explain this question a little more to my guests. I think sometimes people get confused when I say clays. I mean, I don't care if it's trap, ski, whatever. Like most you've ever hit in a row. I don't know. Maybe 20. I, I may, oh, I may, that's pretty I good. Maybe shoot clays like two or three times a year. Um, I, it, you know, it's fun, but, and some people are really enjoy it. But for me, I'm just like, eh, it's kind of just hunting practice to me. And I feel like clays don't, they help, but they're not like, they don't perfectly mimic not, the, the feel yeah, no. like of a, of a real wild bird flesh. Um, Absolutely. So, so they help with uh, form and, you know, learning to lead your target and all that, but they're not the real yeah. thing. Make, it gives us the impression that we're. I don't know. It helps in the summer, I guess. Uh -huh. it's, it's an activity. Yeah. It's an activity to do in the you summer bet. with your shotgun. You <laughs> That's all it is. Um, all right. If you could dream up a, a dream hunt or a fantasy hunt, what would that look like for you? Uh, where would you go? What would you hunt? Who would you be with? And uh, you could only bring one of your dogs. Well, the, with the dogs, you know, unfortunately, with, at 13, Bailey's probably not going to be around a whole lot longer. So I suppose it'd be Blaze, the new pup. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like I got to tick off all of the, the popular destinations, you know, and I don't really feel like I even have like a bucket list of, of birds, but I would really like to hunt ptarmigan at some point. Um, probably in Colorado, it's fairly close. Um, and I would like to hunt quail. Um, yeah, maybe in some of the kind of more overlooked areas, like it'd be fun to hunt mountain quail. Um, hmm. over on the coast or, um, I don't know, Southeast Colorado for scalies and bobs. That could be a super fun hunt. If, um, the Southern Plains that, drought ever 
breaks. Yeah, I know. That'd be nice. <laughs> well, hey, if you come down to, to come down to hunt Scalies, give me a call. Cool. I'll, uh, I haven't I actually have not hunted them yet, but yeah. it's on my oh, it's on my and, quote and to do who, list. right? Um, with, with yeah, who would you bring? With two little kids. I mean, most of my fantasies about future bucket list hunts <laughs> yes. revolve around. You know, imagining that day when I'm getting slow and they're getting fast, but we're kind of at that equilibrium uh, yep. and um, just kind of exploring some new haunt. I don't even know if it matters where, just somewhere wild yeah. with, anywhere. with wild anywhere. birds. Oh, sounds awesome. All right, Josh, last one. Beverage of choice after a hunt. Um, hot day. I'm going with uh, San Pellegrino Limonada. <laughs> nice yep yeah super refreshing first one to say that first one that's that's a, i don't i'll be on that's a seltzer water right yeah essentially but it's more like a okay. lemonade pop yeah okay yeah okay. yeah so um that's yeah awesome. super refreshing after a hot day but if it's a cold day i would hopefully have some tea left from the morning like a english black tea <laughs> or earl gray or something there you go there you go. That's awesome. And also, did you call it? Did you just call it pop? Yes, my my mid, okay, Midwestern thank, thank roots are in there. Yes. So I grew up calling it pop. It's all we called it in Chicago. Uh-huh. And then I met my wife, and she's like, "No, you have to change it. You have to call it soda now." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, I guess so." Was that part of the conversation so, of like, how are we going to raise our kids, and where are we going to go to church? And pretty all much. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it was, "Hey, you are going to call this soda." And so now I'm I'm trained fairly well. So when I hear when I hear someone call it pop, I'm like, "Oh, you're a Midwestern." <laughs> yep. <laughs> I can I, going back to my going back to my roots. Uh-huh. Oh, but Josh, um, hey, this has been so much fun. Thank you for uh, for sharing your knowledge and uh, your uh, yeah, just some of your story and and some of the things that you're passionate about. Um, really resonated with me, and I'm sure it did uh, with with our listeners as well. So thank, thank you, you so much. It's great talking yeah, absolutely. to you. Will. Yeah, you too, Josh. Um, if anyone wants to, I guess, stay up to, up to date with you, follow along in your journey, um, your website, just an Instagram, like what's the best way for them to follow up with, with some of the maybe stories you've written or things like that? You could find me on Instagram at Salim underscore or Tatman, T-A-T-M-A-N. Salim Tatman, not Tatum, right? Correct. <laughs> all right, Josh, you have a great night. Thanks for uh, chatting, and we'll be talking soon, all right? Yep, you bet. Well, that's a wrap of episode 59 with Josh Tatum. Josh, thank you so much, man. Uh, It was so great having you on and hearing uh, really your thoughtful responses and uh, take on upland habitat and conservation and uh, kind of the future of what this looks like going forward um, as, as we, you know, specifically Wyoming, but even across the country, some of the some of the different acts and things that are going on around the country right now. Really appreciate uh, time you've taken to do some research of your own uh, for some of your writing and all just your personal knowledge as well. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with us today. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoy it, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a rating and review. I uh, have loved reading some of these reviews uh, uh, that you're leaving on Apple Podcasts. Really has uh, been inspiring to me just to hear um, just how this show has inspired you or helped you or 
in any way inspired you to, uh, to get out there and put some miles on your boots and follow your favorite bird dog into the field uh, create some new memories with your friends and your bird dogs um, so I love reading those um, be sure to share it on social media guys I love uh, one of the ways you can just help support the show is sharing it on social media so click that share button on Instagram Facebook whatever it might be and just write a little I don't know quick little sentence like hey this episode was great because blank or I learned blank <laughs> whatever from uh, from the episode really would appreciate that helping the show get out there to more hunters and bird dog lovers just like you don't forget I have Upland Rookie hats available shoot me a message if you would like one 38 bucks for a hat includes shipping and a uh, $4 contribution to pheasants forever it included in the $38 okay that's it guys it's time for me to go to bed <laughs> this has been so much fun until next time put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog take care